You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast. My name's Andrew Mackay-Smith. This is a conversation that features myself and Scott Ian. Scott is the rhythm guitarist, and I suppose you'd say one of the principal architects of thrash metal. He's the guy in Anthrax and also SOD. The reason for the conversation is to promote Scott's upcoming spoken word tour of Australia under the banner of the One Man Riot. I'll read out some dates. Monday the 24th of September he's playing in Adelaide. Wednesday the 26th he is playing in Melbourne. Saturday the 29th he's playing in Sydney. And finally, October the 1st, which is a Monday, he's playing in Brisbane. Let's hear what he has to say. Here we go. Yeah, good. No no worries. Yeah, Andrew McKay-Smith calling. Sorry. <laughs> Just to, I was thinking, I don't, want to miss, I don't want to miss my opportunity to talk to the bloody great Scott Ian. So, oh yeah, no you know worries, man. You know how it is, mate. Uh, how much time have I got? Um, I uh, twenty minutes, whatever it is. Wonderful. Okay, no worries, mate. You're coming down to Australia. I've certainly got the press blurb that explains what's going on. But for anybody listening, because I'll be releasing this on my radio show, tell us all about the performance. It's an unusual performance, I suppose, in one respect because it's something that you're doing outside of Anthrax and SOD. But tell us about the performance you're bringing down to Australia. Uh, I get on stage and I tell lots of stories and uh, they seem to make people laugh. I put words together in sentences and then in the context of these tales, people seem to laugh in all the right places. And uh, I've I've led a semi-interesting life over the past uh, 35-ish years. And uh, it's not like I was looking to stand on a stage in front of people and and talk about myself because... I, I understand most people really don't give a shit, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I started doing these shows about five years ago and mm. I had fun doing them and the audiences also seemed to have fun. So, um, I got the opportunity to, to come down to Australia and do this. And, uh, you know, when do you get the opportunity to go to Australia in general? Not that often. So, uh, you know, I, I was, I was very excited to, uh, to be able to do it. Yeah, okay, yeah, it's one of those things, and uh, look, I, I am a long-time fan of Anthrax, it must be said. I'm, you're one of the first bands that I ever actually got into. I'm trying to think, I think one of the first metal albums, equally saying one of the first albums that I ever bought was The Persistence of Time, so in a lot of ways, Anthrax's music has been a soundtrack to my life. So now to hear you up there on stages, you've also written a book too, so you've got a wonderful book out there for people to listen to, but it's really interesting as a very talented guy, as you clearly are, that you can branch out and you can bring so much of yourself to the people. So what inspired you to branch out into the spoken word thing? Because I know it's not easy standing up there all by yourself. Sorry if it brings on a bit of anxiety saying it like this, but it's one thing to be behind a guitar, and I know this because I do it myself. I play guitar and I play bass, so up there on stage, but it's an entirely different thing to stand up in front of people and talk to them about your life. So does the preparation for a performance as such or a spoken word performance, is that any different or how does that differ for when you get up on stage with Anthrax? I, I, I couldn't disagree more. I actually find uh, I have absolute 100% complete control over everything going on when I do the talking shows. I'm not, I'm not a one-fifth part of, of a band on stage where, you know, yeah, I, I'm the guitar player in Anthrax, but I can't control everything going on that stage. So much more could happen or go right or wrong or whatever in the context of being in a band. Hmm. For me, being on stage in the talking shows, look, I've never had any fear of being in front of people or speaking 
expressing myself in any way, shape or form. And now it's just me and a microphone and I've got a, I've got all the control and all the responsibility and, and um, I, I, and I love it. I love, I love that feeling of being up there and, and doing that. Look, I mean, you could say I'm a frustrated singer because I, I can't sing. I couldn't be the front man in anthrax. I, I'm not a singer, but when I go tell stories, I'm expressing myself in a very similar way that I do in the band I, I, on stage in anthrax. I've got my guitar on and I'm up there giving everything I have playing songs that I co-wrote with my friends in anthrax and I, I'm expressing myself and I'm doing the same thing when I'm telling stories. It's this, it's the same feeling for me. It's absolutely 100% the same feeling, except it's all, it's all me. And therefore I have, I have all the control, which I love. I love that because if something goes wrong, it's, it's me. I'm the only one up there. Only I can make a mistake. And if I make a mistake, who cares? Because I'm just up there telling stories. It's not like my guitar, my, my voice isn't going to go out of tune. So yeah. it's just, it's, it, yes, in that way it is different. But at the same time, I really do feel the same in that I'm expressing myself. I'm just on stage expressing myself. I just so happen to be doing it with words instead of chords. Okay. All right, I'm going to go back in time a little bit because I said I'm an old fan and one of my favourite albums of yours, if not my favourite album of yours, is, a, is an album that you can't even get on iTunes, at least in Australia at the moment, which is Stomp 442. So it's an album that contains some, some wonderful deep cuts. My question for you is, what's your view on that album now that it's, if you can believe, it's about 23 years old at this stage? That's weird that it's not on iTunes because... I mean, it is, it is here. <laughs> yeah, I thought, well, just to let uh, you know, kind of yeah, yeah, it should be, to be honest, because it's a bloody good album. That one, the other one, Volume 8 as well. What about, you... uh, what about Sound of White Noise? Can you get that one? I will look for you right now. hope so, uh, because that's another one. Because uh, that... those, are, those are the two Electra albums, so it would be weird if one wasn't available and the other was. But I will definitely let my manager know about that tomorrow. But... Uh, I don't know my view on that. I, honestly, I haven't thought of that record in a long time until you just mentioned it. So um, <laughs> I really, I don't know. I think it's a, I, I love the record. I think it's got some great songs on it. I think it's, it was uh, nightmarishly overlooked at the time in 1995. Oh, yeah. It, yep. it never got the chance that it, it should have. And I, I look, I'm not bitter about it. it uh, certainly in 1995, I was angry about it because um, no one seemed to be doing anything to help us. But obviously having hindsight and being able to look back at 1995 and how everything was changing in the, in the landscape of music and everything at that time, um, I, I could certainly look back and understand why it got buried. And, and, uh, uh, but at the same time, yeah, in 1995, I was definitely angry over the fact that, you know, we came off a record, we came off Sound of White Noise, which was basically a platinum album in mm, the state. Brilliant, yeah. And then Stomp 442 comes out only two years later and, and ends up, you know, at the end of the day, it probably sold about 150,000 copies. So you know, I've always said, it's like, well, where did 800,000 people go? Like, it's just insane to me that, so many people didn't know we had a record out. I, I, I just, I, that's one of those questions I guess I'll never answer. And I, I honestly, I stopped asking it a long time ago because it's, it's been 23 years, 
But uh, yeah, I think it's a killer record. I think there's great songs on it. And uh, I think it holds up with any metal record that came out in the mid nineties. You know, it, it just, it's a shame that more people don't know about it. Tell me about, and I know you've spoken a little bit about this one here, but I want you to focus strictly on the music, if that's okay. Your relationship with Dimebag, because one of my favourite leads that he ever did is on King Size, and that includes the stuff that he did with Pantera. And um, I I can't remember the name of the song, sorry, it's escaped me, on Volume 8, that he did that wonderful solo and leads on there. But your relationship musically with Dime, you guys seem to hit it off. So is there anything else you can share about your relationship with Dime? Um, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, you know, we were, we were friends first and foremost, you know, we were friends. We were friends outside of band stuff. You know, we weren't, when we weren't talking about band stuff, when, when we would hang out, we were, we were just regular friends and it's, you know, I know a million dudes in bands. And most of those million dudes are, you see them and you say, hi, and how are you? And, but you know, it's not like I've made a a deep connection with every dude I I know in a band, but Daryl was one of those few people that we transcended the fact that we both played in bands and we became friends outside of that. And we stayed in touch with each other. You know, we would stay in touch with with each other. We would see each other whenever we could whether they were coming through New York or LA or we were coming through Texas or wherever it was. I mean, um, I, I really cherished those times that I got to see him certainly, you know, through the nineties when, when Pantera was at their, their peak. And then, you know, we toured with them in 97, 98 in the States. So then I got to hang out with them every day, which of course I, I talk a lot about in my show, but um, yeah, I would just say that, it was, it was a lot more normal than probably people expect. Yes, of course, there were the, all the crazy shenanigans that people know about Daryl and all the, the insanity and the drinking and, and all that and the fun. But at the same time, it was also just, just very, very normal, and it could be very quiet as well. And there was just yeah. as many quiet moments as there were noisy moments and. uh and, you know, that's probably what I cherish even more as, as much fun as it was to, to break things and, uh, and, and drink too much. Just getting to like sit around like quietly at four in the afternoon and talk about life. Uh, that was always, you know, because we were just friends. We, I, I, could, yeah. I, I think I could safely say we enjoyed each other's company. Yeah, yeah. No, good stuff, mate. Yeah, because – and. It, that comes across in how comfortable his guitar playing sits in with your music. And to be completely frank with you, prior to hearing, I heard through the media back in the day, God, it was all print back in those days, that he was going to be guesting on some of the tracks. And I thought, God, I wonder what this is going to sound like. Because at the time, I thought you guys were very different bands. But it just seems to work so well. And for 23 years later, for that solo and for that lead to to still be as vital as what it is, it just it's right out of the bloody speaker and just grabs you. So, look, I appreciate you sharing sharing your insight there about time because I also appreciate you probably get asked about it quite a bit. So, Yeah, you know, it's funny because I, I forget sometimes, you know, that he played on three of our records. You know, how? I mean, how many bands can say they had, like, the best? Uh, you know, it would be like if someone 10 years before us could say, well, Eddie Van Halen played on three of my albums, you know, like... Hmm. Um, you know, that's just how close we were, man. Like, and it wasn't just me. It's, 
he was probably even closer with Charlie than, than he was with me. I mean, we were just really, really good friends. And I, I always, I think about it. I think on stomp, I can't remember. We, we were trying to pay him. We want to, you know, we're like, dude, you played on the record. We have to pay you. He's like, I'm not taking your fucking money. You know, like this was, what, what did I do? I came to the studio, we hung out, we had fun and I played guitar. You're going to pay me for that. And we were like, look, it's just, we, we, we can't, we have to do something. And so we bought, he, there was some video camera that he wanted at the time. So we bought him a video camera. Oh yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and then like on the next album on volume eight, I think we bought him a TV. And then I can't remember on, uh, on we've come for you all. I don't, I think he said, you guys are getting this one for free. I won't take anything. And I think he wouldn't take anything from us on that third one. Okay, there you go. Look, another guitarist you've worked with who I'm personally a big fan of because I think he's an extraordinary composer, composer and arranger, and I was really hoping at the time that he'd stay on with you guys, and that's Paul Crook. So have you got a relationship with him to this day, and is there any chance or is there an opportunity for you guys to team up and work together again? Oh, yeah, we're all friends. Uh, we just saw Paul. He came to the New Jersey show on, on this tour. Um, yeah, you know, Paul, look, he, he, he got out of Anthrax at the right time because it was kind of right after that where my wife basically got him the gig with her dad's band in Meatloaf. Yep. And, uh, and, you know, that was a great gig for him for a really long time. So, um, yeah, we're... We're all friends and uh, work together. I, I don't I mean, in the context of anthrax, I, I think I could safely say that would probably not. Yeah. But it doesn't mean I wouldn't do something with him outside of anthrax. What about SOD? Yourself and, and Billy, is, is there a friendship there these days? And do you think that there would ever be a, a third or a fourth album that might be released? I mean, uh, we it's not like we're we don't we don't communicate very often. It's kind of few and far between that there's any communication, but I, I have no, personally, I have no issue with Billy at all. None. I mean, look, I, I learned a long time ago. There's really, uh, you know, unless someone did something to you that was so bad that it's unforgivable, yeah. you know, and I understand that there are things someone could do to somebody that, you know, you would never want to speak to them again. But outside of that, life's too short to, harbor that kind of shit and i don't have i don't have anything like that with billy i love billy i think he's fucking great and uh whether or not we ever do anything with sod again i don't have an answer for that um it's not like i have some exorbitant amount of time to be in another band so and that's been the case since 1985 so um and you know and obviously the same goes for charlie we we're pretty busy with our day job and have been for 33 years since Speak English or Die came out. So, you know, I love S.O.D. It's, it's my baby. I created Sergeant D. Yeah. I wrote half that album before I even told anyone about it. So nobody loves it more than I do, and I would love to do more with it. It's just a case of, for me personally, maintaining what it means to me and never doing anything that I would think is, is wrong for what it is. I just don't want to do it if it's going to make me feel like, oh, I'm just doing this to either to get paid or um, just against the spirit because SOD was never meant to be a real band in my mind. And uh, hmm. um, it's never meant to have the baggage of a real band. It's never meant to be a job. It, it was something that made us laugh to the point where we were pissing ourselves. And 
that's what SOD should be. So if it could be done in that kind of a spirit in some way, shape, or form, then I'd be the first one in line. Look, I don't want to put a number on it, but I reckon if I was going to, about 15% of the people globally that are into Celtic Frost owe SOD and yourself a bit of a, a bit of a debt there because of that track you released on the album in 99 or 2000. So, look, I'll let, you know, it's <laughs> classic material. Yeah. Yeah. Mate, I better leave it there. Um, I, I want to say, this: you're one of those guys that's been on my bucket list for a long time. Thank you so much for the opportunity to have a conversation. I'll certainly try and be in the audience oh, when, when you come to Australia. It's just so bloody hard when you've got kids, as I'm sure you can appreciate these days, to get out of the house on, I, on nights. I hear you. <laughs> you know, so... Yeah, hey, I'm, I'm, get, I'm getting out of the house, and I'm flying 7,400 miles. That's talking, <laughs> talking about getting out of the house with, with a child. Yeah, so, um, somehow I was able to make that happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, mate, just keep doing what you're doing. I love your riffage. I can always tell whenever there's Scott Ian playing, no matter what the song is. Uh, I, I love listening to your rhythm guitar. It's just such an identifiable, com- and identifiable component of heavy metal, not just Anthrax's music. So well done. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, mate. No worries. All right. All gotcha. right. Cheers. Bye. Bye. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast. My name's Andrew Mackay-Smith. That was a conversation that featured myself and Scott Ian. Just a quick note, you probably heard me say through the conversation that Scott has some books out there available to listen to. That is correct. They're available on Audible. Check it out. Thanks so much for listening.